today um, is my mother's 23rd yurtzeit. She passed away in two, 2000 on the 11th day of the Hebrew month of Shvat. And uh, I want to share with you, every year I try to learn something and complete a tractate of Talmud in her memory. And I want to share with you uh, an insight that came out today. Uh, when I was Messiah, I completed uh, the, the, the tractate of Nadarim about vows. And uh, I concluded by saying over the story at the very end, the Masechta ends with the story on page 91b. And we're going to discuss the significance of the page number 91. If you've followed with me for any amount of time, you know that 91 is my favorite mystical Jewish number. Um, and the, the, the Gemara there concludes with the story of a a man who comes home to his house and unbeknownst to him, there was a, a, his wife and another man were in the process of having an adulterous relationship. And the other man heard the husband coming home and quickly hid behind the door. The husband comes in and the husband sees some lettuce lying on the table and he's about to take a bite of the lettuce. But the adult, the would-be adulterer, knew that a snake had recently been uh, licking some of that lettuce and had injected some poison into that lettuce. And the man cries out. The the hidden adulterer risks his identity and calls out, "Don't eat the lettuce!" And now the 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 man, the husband, comes to the rabbi and he says, "Am I allowed to stay married to my wife?" There's a law in Judaism that if a woman is unfaithful, then the couple has to be divorced. And the question is, can, and the, the wife, of course, says nothing happened. I mean, he might have come there with the intention of doing something with me, but nothing happened. We were not together. I was not. I did not betray your trust, she says to her husband. And the, the Talmud says that the man, the, the wife is believed that there was no adulterous act committed. Why? Because the Talmud says that had the uh, would-be adulterer actually done something, he never would have tried to save the life of the husband by telling him about the poison lettuce because he would have uh, hoped that the husband would be out of the picture so that he could, uh, so that he could spend more time with the wife in, a, in an open fashion. So the Talmud says, but since he called out and tried to save the husband's life, you can assume that he was really innocent, that he didn't actually do anything with the wife. And now the, uh, the Talmud says, well, that's, that's obvious. You know, like we know that uh, if a person is guilty of adultery, then uh, they probably wouldn't mind the, uh, the significant other being out of the picture. But the Talmud says, so what would I have thought? Why are you telling me this? It's obvious. The Talmud says, no. Because there's a rule that mayim genuvim nimtakim, stolen waters are sweet. What does that mean? That when a person has the opportunity to taste something that's not allowed, either not allowed uh, for a religious reason or something that's not theirs or something they know they shouldn't be doing, there's a certain secret pleasure, an illicit pleasure of doing something you know you're not supposed to be doing. And the Talmud says that one might have thought that because of that secret pleasure, the adulterer would rather 
the husband stick around so he can continue to enjoy the illicit, wrongful nature of that relationship. And therefore, he wanted to save the husband's life because he enjoys that there is a husband in the picture. That part that makes that's what makes it so exciting. Uh, however, the Talmud concludes, nonetheless, um, he would not have saved the husband's life because really uh, he there's various explanations for why that is. But it comes out, and that's the way the Talmud concludes, it comes out there's this concept called maim genuvim, stolen waters being sweet, right? Water is typically, uh, I mean, water is described as sweet, but what does that mean? Stolen waters are sweet. Why specifically water? Why and... Um, What's what's the what's the message there? And on top of it, we have an issue because there's another concept in the Talmud called Nahama de Kasufim. What's the concept of Nahama de Kasufim? Nahama de Kasufim is the concept that that people typically by nature do not enjoy things that they don't earn. People don't like free gifts. Nahama de Kasufim means bread of shame, and the uh, the the message of bread of shame is typically explained as why did God create the how the story of how God created the world? God, the question is, God created the world uh, according to Kabbalah, Jewish philosophy, ABC. What's the reason for the purpose of meaning of life? Why did God create the world? It was in order to share goodness with other, in order to give us the greatest possible good. So the question arises: So why don't we have that good? Where is it? And so we know that something has to be earned. We have to earn that goodness. We have to earn that reward that closeness to the infinite pleasure that God wants to share with us, which of course is his oneness, the experience of being close to God, of being God-like, of, of closeness to infinite oneness and perfection. There's different explanations of how to do that, etc., what that means exactly. But simplifying it the, the, is just to, to achieve a reward. And the question is, why didn't God just give us that reward? Why do we have to earn it? The Talmud answers, because Mayim because because of bread of shame, that if we had earned, if we had gotten that reward without having earned it, it would be actually embarrassing. It wouldn't be pleasurable. It would actually be something that we would despise. But so we have to be given this process of life, coming into a world of uncertainty and of darkness, in order to earn our closeness to God, in order to earn the next world. So if that's true, then how could it be that something stolen is sweet? Right? We just said that there's a concept that free gifts don't aren't appreciated, and yet stealing is the greatest uh, example of something you didn't deserve. That you didn't you take you someone works really hard to buy a car, they work for many years, they save up the money, they buy a car, and you come and take it from them. You did nothing to deserve it. You, you're not going to appreciate it. In fact, they it's actually brought down that. Uh, that most people who win the lottery end up losing the money, becoming depressed, ruins their lives. Most people after a few years end up exactly where they started, if not worse, financially. Why? Because people don't appreciate those things that are given to them for free. So how do we explain this contradiction? So we're talking in talking about water stolen waters so it reminds me of another concept that we've spoken about a few months ago which is the idea of mayim nuchfin and mayim dukhfin, dukhrin 
feminine waters and masculine waters, which is also related to the story in the Torah of Mayim Takhtonim and Mayim Elyonim, lower waters and upper waters. What is what is the concept? The Torah says that God created the world. There was water, the first thing, on the first day of creation. There was water on the surf. Uh, there was gracious um, bar Elokim in the beginning of of creation. Uh, uh, of creating heavens and the earth, and the land was empty and void, the home, and there was darkness on the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered on the surface of the waters. And that's on day one, we see there's something called water. And on the second day, God says, let there be a rikia, let there be a sky, and it will separate between the mayim, lamayim, between the upper water and the lower water. And the Talmud says that the lower water was very upset. It wanted to be closer, to, it wanted to be in the up, connected to the upper water, the upper water which is closer, so to speak, to God. What is this lower water and upper water? So in Kabbalah, we have a concept called feminine water and masculine water. What does that mean? Feminine water refers to um, inspiration or arousal that comes from below, meaning from us. We're described as the feminine in comparison to God. God gives to us, we receive from Him. So when we do the effort, that's called feminine water. When God gives us inspiration from above, that's called masculine water. It's, It's coming from above. So Kabbalah explains that this lower water, the water on on earth, so to speak, desires to go up to God, to go back to God. And that's why the ocean, the waves and the tides is the water yearning to go higher. Perhaps can be expressed in the process of evaporation. These are all metaphors for the desire to reconnect to the oneness of God that's beyond this world. There are two aspects of God. There's God beyond the world. That's the oneness of God. That's called in Kabbalah, Kud Shabrihu, Hashem, the the creator who exists as, as a oneness that's beyond this world. And then there's something called the Shechina, the divine presence, which is here within the world. And the Shechina desires to reconnect to Hashem, to reconnect to the to the oneness. It's an exile in the world. God's presence is hidden in all the different various aspects of this multiplicity world. Our job as Jews is to reconnect the Shekhinah, the spirituality that's within this world, to God above. That's the idea of making a blessing. When we eat something, the Talmud says, if you eat something without a blessing, it's like you're stealing from God. But once you make a blessing, now you've freed, so to speak, the spirituality within that food. Now it belongs to you, and you can eat it. The idea of making a blessing is recognizing that this food, which looks physical, actually has spirituality within it, and I'm acknowledging that it comes from the source of oneness. That's what that's what happens before I eat. So our job in this world is to reconnect the physical world with God himself, with spirituality that's beyond this world. And we do that through mitzvahs. The Torah is essentially a guide to taking the physical world and uplifting it, reconnecting it. That's the metaphor of animal sacrifices. You take a physical thing and you burn it up into its elements, essentially taking physicality and returning it to spirituality. Eating represents this process. And the entire Torah is essentially 
a guide to how to engage in physical things in order to reconnect the physical with the spiritual. So, um, in this week's Parsha, the Jewish people escape from Egypt. We have the splitting of the sea. I believe I haven't figured it out yet, but this idea of the water splitting symbolizes revealing that this world, the physical world, is nothing but God. The water, which re the lower water, which represents the physical, when it splits, you reveal that there's nothing but God, even down here, even in this world. And then the Jewish people arrive at a place called Mara, right after the splitting of the sea. And it's a place of bitter water. The word Mara means bitter. And the people start complaining. It's nothing for us to drink. And then Moshe takes a stick and eats, which means a tree, and throws it into the water, and the water becomes sweet. Listen to that. Literally, what we've just mentioned, the water becomes sweet. The exact same word as we mentioned in the Talmud of Mayim Genuvim Nimtachim, bitter water, stolen waters are sweet. Moshe takes a stick and he throws it into this water. And the Torah says, hamayim, the water becomes, becomes sweet. So what what is the symbolism there? So some say that the eights that he threw in is a symbolism for the eights Achaim, the eights, the tree of life, which is the Torah. And Moshe, at this moment, the, the Talmud says that the Jewish people had gone for 30 days without any Torah, without any without any connection in some way to, to the learning of Torah. Torah hadn't yet been given, so I'm not sure exactly what that means. And Moshe now at that moment, did some sort of action to connect us to the Torah again, taking his eights and throwing it into the water. Torah is a recipe for how to steal closeness to God, how to earn our next world. God wants us to earn the next world. How do we do that? By working on our relationship with God in this world. There are different explanations of how we achieve that closeness to God, either by perfecting ourselves, by perfecting the world, by having a relationship with God, by revealing God in this world, by some act, the act of connection to God that takes place through the mitzvahs, which essentially is God teaching us how, what he wants from us, how to show our love for him. But I think it's very simple. What's the message? How do we understand that the, a, a person hates free gifts? Ultimately, the soul hates free gifts. Our body actually likes free gifts, but our soul hates free gifts. And yet the fact and, – and the other concept that stolen waters are sweet – I think is as follows because you see that just the act of stealing something, even though you did nothing to earn that thing, that act of just getting into the car and turning on the engine or pickpocketing something, that act is enough of an action to make the thing ours. It just takes a little bit of effort to acquire that feeling of ownership that you're no longer embarrassed to have that thing. The thief feels that he did something. What do you mean? He did do something to deserve it. He went and stole it. And the message for us is that all Hashem wants from us to earn our closeness to him is just the smallest little effort. In fact, I saw it brought down that really all God wants is the desire that, to grow close to him. All it takes is the desire. That's the symbolism of the lower waters, the ocean that just longs to go up to God. The waves crashing, just longing and yearning. That's, that's all we need to do is just to yearn for a little bit of closeness.
and all of this comes together perhaps with with the the holiday coming up of Tubishvat, the Rosh Hashanah, the the New Year for trees coming up next week. The Talmud says on Tuba on Chamisha Eser of Ah of Shvat, the fifteenth day of the month of Shvat is Rosh Hashanah Le'ilan. It's the Rosh Hashanah for tree. And it's brought down that Elon tree has numerical value of 91. What's the symbolism of 91? 91 is the numerical value, the gematria of Hashem, yud Hey vav Hey, 26, with the name Adnas, Adenoi, which is the way we pronounce Hashem will make a blessing. You put those two together, you get 91. 65 plus 26 equals 91. What does that mean? Why does that matter? Because the whole purpose of this God is to take the Shechina, symbolized by the name Adokoi, which represents God hidden in the world, and reunite it with Kudshabrichu, with the Holy One, God, which is beyond the world, symbolized by Yudke Vavke, four-letter name of God, and to connect the two. And the tree symbolizes that. How does the tree symbolize that? Because that? a tree represents this world. The bark, the hard bark represents the process of going through this world. The fruit, on the other hand, represents the next world. The next world where we, we enjoy the closeness to God. So the, tree, the Talmud says that in the next world, the fruit and the bark will taste the same. That means in the next world, we'll recognize that the journey and the process of this world was actually sweet. It was actually earning us that closeness in the next world. And that's the idea of the lower water reaching up to the upper water. And Hashem just wants us to yearn, just wants us to yearn for closeness. And uh, as we mentioned, this this story falls out on the last page of Nadarim, which is page 91. Coincidence? I don't think so. So I just want to say that uh, my mother should have a tremendous aliyah. Her neshama is watching over us and all of her grandchildren. And uh, hopefully she gets a lot of reward through the work that we continue to do, the mitzvahs that we continue to do in her memory. And she should have an aliyah's neshama. Her neshama should have an aliyah. And we should be zocha to only share uh, simchas together. Thank you so much for listening.